You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Albany Adams, and me and my husband, Chad, attend the McLean Community Group here at Redeemer. (laughs) Um, I'm going to be reading the scripture today. It's going to be in Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you do not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Amen. I took a weird route to get to this uh, stand here. Hey, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. Thank you so much for being here. If you're a guest, There is a Connect card on the QR code that will be on the screen at the end of the service or on the communion table on the back, or you can take a physical Connect card and fill that out. If you'd take a second, fill one of those out, let us know how we can connect with you, how we can serve you, and how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. If you would like a physical Bible, you can raise your hand. Scotty will bring you one. If you're on your phone or your tablet or whatever, we use the ESV. So we're at the end of, of our walk through Jonah. We've been here the last five weeks. And perhaps you've read ahead and know how this story is about to end. Maybe you don't know how this story is going to end. But if you don't, spoiler alert, Jonah has a horrible attitude about the Ninevites and their repentance. And while his attitude is horrible and not God-honoring, I would like to submit to you that the story of Jonah is a story of us all. And as I was reading this passage this week in in preparation for this sermon, I was oddly encouraged. And here's why. I think it's easy to look at Jonah and see what Jonah has experienced, even with the little bit that we know about him outside of the book of Jonah. It is clear that Jonah has heard from God Jonah has experienced God. Jonah has experienced God's grace on his life. 
God has used Jonah in his preaching, both in the nation of Israel and now in a foreign nation of Assyria. And God has orchestrated all of these events in Jonah's life to sustain him and to deliver him. Jonah has experienced God. Jonah has experienced God's great mercy to him. Jonah has no reason to be angry. He has no reason to question God, who has not only saved him, but has acted consistently within his nature and his character to save repentant sinners. And Jonah's angry. Because God has not done what Jonah thinks God should do. Or Jonah's angry because God has not done what Jonah wants God to do. So before we condemn Jonah, lest we forget, we are exactly the same. We examine our lot in life and think that we deserve this or we deserve that or that we don't deserve what we're getting or that God has forgotten us, or God is mistreating us, and God isn't loving, or worse. We want grace for ourselves so that we can continue to live however we want to live. Or we want grace for ourselves and people who are just like us, but don't want to offer that saving grace to people who don't look like us, who don't vote like us, who don't have the same sexual ethics as us. We, like Jonah, like to think about ourselves on this spectrum of mostly good and really bad. Right? Just me? Okay, cool. Mostly good people and really bad people. Like, yeah, I sin sometimes, but it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, I mean, I may do this or that, but I'm not as bad as that other guy over there. I may drink too much sometimes, or I may be in a sexual relationship with someone who's not my spouse, or I may look at porn sometimes, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I can handle it. It's not that big of a deal because I haven't murdered anyone or anything like that. I'm not as bad as those people. Or even like think about some more like culturally acceptable sins that, that we get caught up in. I may be anxious all the time. I may be a prideful person. I may be characterized by being completely unthankful for stuff, the stuff that God has given me. I may be characterized by being completely discontent with everything. I don't have any self-control around food. I'm unwise with my money. I'm a gossip. But those aren't major sins. I'm not that bad. But listen, when you really understand the cross of Christ, you see that no one is good. And we are all really, really bad. Worse than you even realize. 
You also see that your sin in any form is treasonous rebellion against the holy and just God who has made a claim on your life to love him and to worship him in perfection. And we can't. We can't follow him the way that he commands us to follow him because our hearts are so sick with sin. And even if we could follow God like he wants us to, we wouldn't. Because at our core, we don't love God. And we don't want to love God. We don't want Jesus to be the Lord and master and ruler of our life. And yet, we have a God who pursues us. We have a God who pursues us and loves us in spite of us. So the reason I was encouraged, (laughs) after realizing how bad I was, the reason I was encouraged by Jonah is despite Jonah's progression from disobedience to trust and repentance to then obedience and now to sinful anger, it shows me that the sanctification process, the process of becoming more and more like Christ, is not an easy process. We have an example in the person of Jonah... Not as a person to emulate, but as a person we can identify with and that we can learn from. We are so sinful that we don't deserve God's grace. And even in our willful disobedience, we have a God that is near. And we have a God that wants us. We have a God that wants to have a relationship with us. And he has made that possible by his death and resurrection. So the call on you this morning, church, is to consider your life. Consider your life. Consider your view of sin and consider God's holiness. Does the knowledge of what you've been saved from and God's relentless pursuit of you lead you to more love and devotion to him? And if not, why not? Do you minimize your sin? Do you just minimize your sin? That's the, uh, it's kind of the frame we're going to be working towards this morning. So before we dive into the text, let's pray because we need a lot of help from the Lord this morning. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our need for, for you, Lord. We are a people so bent on rebellion, Lord, and you are gracious and kind and loving and call us back. May we run to the open arms of our Father in faith and repentance this morning by your good grace and mercy, Jesus. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your holy and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
All right, Jonah chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So let's summarize chapter 3 so this makes sense. If you're new, um, let me just give you a couple summary statements. Jonah goes and preaches this message of God's judgment and the need for repentance in this evil city of the Assyrian kingdom. The city is known as Nineveh. And by the power of God, the people respond in repentance to the message of God. I'm low-key a little jealous of Jonah. Like, Jonah's living my pastoral dream. He calls people to faith and belief, and they respond. And so... The expectation then, as you read through Jonah, is that this prophet can now return home to his homeland, content and satisfied that God is who God says he is. A God who Jonah recognizes as, because God has set himself to be, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who himself forgives sinners, and won't leave the guilty unpunished. Jonah has been obedient to God, and God has honored his obedience. And yet, as a walking contradiction, Jonah leaves Nineveh angry. So he goes outside the city, and he's angry, and he, he prays. It wasn't a pure prayer that he prayed, but at least he prayed. I think this could be a sermon on its own. Jonah prays in spite of his circumstances. May that just speak to all of us real quick. We aren't just to pray when things are good. We aren't simply to pray only when things are easy. We're also not just to pray when we feel like we're in a desperate crisis situation. But Scripture tells us to pray in all circumstances, even when we're upset, and even, dare I say it, when we're upset with God. Jonah's anger is misplaced, but he is human after all. And God, as the creator of our emotions, can handle that. At least Jonah is going to God in his anger. At the root of Jonah's anger, though... Jonah is dissatisfied with God's character. God has forgiven repentant sinners. So let's zoom in a little bit on this. God has forgiven a people that Jonah hates. And to make matters worse, Jonah is now justifying his sinful anger by blaming God. Jonah is shifting blame onto God for being God. He says, God, that's why I tried to run away from you, because I knew you were going to do this. God, I knew you wouldn't act contrary to your nature, and now I'm upset. So just to be clear, Jonah does not have a problem with grace and mercy. He has benefited significantly from God's grace and mercy to him. 
Jonah has a problem with grace and mercy to people he thinks don't deserve it. In his anger, Jonah is making himself out to be God. Jonah is taking upon himself the role of judge. Let's look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah is asking to die. Here it comes, Bogdan. This seems dramatic. You're reading the text like, calm down, Jamal. Did I use that in the right context? All right, cool. Thanks. All right. This seems dramatic, but here we are. I thought I was going to get more of a reaction, dude. So. Perhaps, though, knowing the relationship that Israel has with Nineveh, you may be inclined to think that Jonah is right. I mean, historically, Nineveh has been brutal towards God's people. Yet, God has directed his love towards people outside of his covenant, bringing them under the covenant of mercy. And this is us too. This is us too. Had God not been willing to spare Nineveh when they repented, then we too have no hope for forgiveness and reconciliation. This text ought to point believers back to the cross. It should point us back to the cross of Christ. It shouldn't lead us to despair and despondency towards God. Because listen, we can't just want freedom in Christ and grace and mercy for ourselves and then withhold it from others. It is only because of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus that we can have life. And Jonah would rather be dead, he says, than to see God's grace and mercy save Gentile sinners. At the foot of the cross, we experience God's cleansing from sin and have the power in us through the Holy Spirit to fight to put sin to death. It's only at the foot of the cross that we experience the life-changing grace of God on our lives. So follow this line of thinking with me for a second. Culturally speaking, we chase experiences. We chase feelings. We are hoping that, I'm doing all kinds of Gen Z stuff today. We're hoping that to quote the youth of the day, like all of these experiences pass the vibe check. Thank you, treasure. Uh, but in a culture full of cynics and skepticism, we have to see it to believe it. And Christians, I think, are guilty of this too. We're like the Pharisees asking Jesus for more. Do more signs. Do more miracles. Jesus, if you fix this. Jesus, if you do this. Jesus, if you show me this, then it will then be enough for me to believe you. It's like trying to pursue holiness on a personal level seems so boring for us. That we want the stuff that Jesus can do for us but we're not always content with Jesus. 
We want the stuff that Jesus can do. We want him to fix our stuff, fix our circumstances, fix the brokenness around us, fix our relationships. But we're not always content with the peace and the life and the fulfillment that he provides us through himself. But again, can I just remind you of how wicked your heart is? Jonah is a picture for us that apart from love and devotion to God, the miraculous will never, ever satisfy the longings of your heart. Jonah has seen the storm that God hurled upon the sea. And then Jonah was thrown into the sea and the storm calmed immediately. Jonah was then sustained in the belly of a fish for three days and spit out onto dry land. And in chapter 3, he sees the greatest miracle that he could see on this side of the resurrection. And that sinners being spared from the wrath of God and, he isn't, and it isn't enough for him. Jonah wants more. When you understand the cross and the resurrection that has cleansed you from your sin and has bought your forgiveness, Jesus is enough. Jonah is angry with God and ready to give up. But God in kindness does not quit on Jonah. Let's look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appeared and appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Jonah goes out of Nineveh and sits where he can see the goings-on. He's just hoping that God might change his mind and destroy Nineveh. It's hot, and he makes a, a structure to shade him from, from the sun. And in the kindness and mercy of the Lord, the Lord appoints a plant. It's the same kindness and the same mercy that God uses to appoint the storm and the fish. God appoints this plant to come up and shade Jonah's head. And Jonah, for the moment, is thrilled. The text says that he is comforted by this plant. The Hebrew word actually says he was delivered by this plant. But the next day, the Lord appoints a worm to eat away at the plant, and the plant withers and dies. Womp, womp. Okay? Jonah has become attached to the plant. Jonah, in fact, loves the plant. You could say that Jonah worships the plant. And look what else happens to poor Jonah. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Not only is it now hot, but he has this hot wind blowing directly on him, and the sun is beating down on him. Jonah is experiencing the equivalent of West Texas 2023 summer in 8th century B.C., but he has no air conditioning. It's hot, 
And Jonah says a second time that he would rather die than to live. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This verse kind of made me laugh, um, not because of content, but because I am really immature. Um, God says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah responds in this funny voice like, yes, I do well to be angry. That's how I, that's how I heard that playing out. I read it like that every time I read it. Yes, I do. Anyways. Um, but the funny part to me is not that Jonah is mocking God, but it just seems so childish. Like, oh, man. Anyways, that's funny, but then it's really sad. It very quickly gets from funny to sad. Um, and here's the sad part. Jonah's concerned with a plant, a temporal non-human, no-soul-having plant. Listen, our reaction to God's work in our life is often a better gauge of our hearts than anything that we may say. So we have Jonah concerned with a plant. God, on the other hand, is concerned with people. People made in his image God is concerned with souls. God's care for Nineveh in the Hebrew has this picture behind it of a God sitting on his throne, weeping over the people of Nineveh because he cares for them. God is concerned with bringing sinful, wicked humanity under the sphere of his love, and he weeps over us. And Jonah cares about a plant. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity this plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? In mercy, yet again, God is kind to Jonah. His kindness, though, looks different than maybe what you think. God's kindness is not ambivalence towards Jonah's sin. But rather, God is being kind to Jonah by showing him just how sinful he is. God is showing Jonah that he is sinning by being so self-centered. Listen, when God, reveals, when God reveals sin to us, it is always a kindness to us. We may not always like it. We may not always like what it reveals to us, but it is God's kindness to show us how morally and spiritually bankrupt we are apart from him. That's the scandalous nature of the gospel. God forgives the least deserving sinners. And therefore, we can now forgive those who have sinned against us because Christ has forgiven you. You are a sinner first and sinned against secondly. Before you were ever, ever sinned against in this life, you were first a sinner 
and God has offered you forgiveness. God in Christ has made a way for the most wicked people to return to him in faith and dependency. Let's look at Romans 5 together. Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. It'll be up on the screen, or if you want to turn there in your Bibles. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows his own love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, that is made right, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, we are seeing Christ as the fulfillment of Jonah's mission. Jonah is showing himself again to be less than Christ, a lesser Christ. We've talked about this term typology over the last few weeks. I'm going to throw it out again. A typology is a literary hermeneutical or an interpretation device in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is used to correspond or understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. So to clarify, there are things in the Old Testament that occur that point forward to events or people in the New Testament. These Old Testament, Old Testament events are typologies that exist as a shadow or a picture of things to come in the New Testament. So we study the Bible in general, and then specifically the Old Testament, not as a disjointed collection of stories or just a random assimilation of writings, but as one big story of a God who rescues and redeems a people unto himself. The Bible is a story about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, this is a story about Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, who comes to earth in accordance with the eternal decree given at the beginning of time that God would rescue a people and he will be their God and they will be his people. So here's how it plays out in the book of Jonah. Jonah was thrown into the sea for pagan sailors. He was sacrificed for Gentiles, just like Christ would be. Jonah was in the belly of the fish, a watery grave for three days, presumed dead and raised to life. Christ was in the grave, slain for the sins of his bride, the church, and sin and death could not contain him. He rose from the grave, rising from death to life by the power of God. Jonah, in reluctance, goes to his enemies and preaches a message that he doesn't want to preach to a people that he hates. Jesus, 
in humble submission to God the Father, goes to his enemies and preaches a message of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness to a people that hate him. Jesus is the better Jonah. While we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, he was pleased to die in our place. Christ died to give us life. Through his ministry and by his resurrection, we have been saved from the wrath of God. And what's more is that we have not only been spared from the wrath of God, but we have been reconciled to God. We have been returned to our original purpose at creation, that God is our God. Christians, we are now his people Forgiveness of sin is wonderful, but it's all the more wonderful and beautiful because we have been called into God's family. God in Christ has adopted us to be his children, to love him, to serve him, and to worship him for all eternity, and to walk with others who have received this same calling. That's our purpose in life from now and until forever. To glorify God who has glorified himself by saving sinners and to enjoy him forever. This is good news for us. But this news ought to propel you out in love and mission for those who don't don't yet know Christ as Savior, and to forgiveness. It should propel you to forgiveness for those who have sinned against you. Because we're the Ninevites. We are a people so wicked and against God, and yet God has offered us grace and mercy And all of this is necessary to repent and believe in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ for you. Christ calls you to go. And yet, before we can go and make disciples like Jesus has commanded, we have to understand the depths of our own depravity and how great a love and a mercy we have received from Jesus. God has shown you mercy simply because it brings him glory to do so. We don't have to earn this mercy. We don't have to earn this grace. It is a free gift of God. All that is required of you to be saved from God's wrath is to receive God's forgiveness by faith. So may the calling of Jesus on your life to save you by his love lead you to love for others and love for Christ. If you don't love others in the way that Christ has loved you, it is entirely possible that you don't understand just how sinful you are. And you don't understand just how good God is. If the sacrifice of Jesus to pardon you and forgive you from your sins doesn't lead you to love and grace for others, then you don't understand the cross. There is nothing good in you. There is nothing good in us. There is nothing deserving of this grace, and yet God saves us simply because he wants us. You can say all the right things. 
you can maybe even do a lot of really good things. But it is possible to do a lot of good, godly things with wrong, sinful motives. It's possible to do all the churchy stuff without love for Christ. The book of Jonah is a critique of Jonah's spiritual condition. Could the same be said about us? Do you care more about yourself, your stuff, your bank account, your image, your reputation, your lifestyle? Do you care about all of that more than you care about Christ? Not only are we Nineveh, but we're also Jonah. The book ends kind of just like this. It remains open-ended because we don't know what happens to Jonah. It ends like a parable of Jesus where we're just called to examine our own lives here. We need the mercy of God to forgive us and empower us to faith and dependency and obedience. Have you received this forgiveness? Are you withholding forgiveness from someone in your life, Christian? Are you willing to follow Jesus in submission to him? The invitation is to just rest. Rest in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. Run towards the cross. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your prejudices. Repent of your discontentment. Repent of your sin. Receive the grace and mercy that speaks a better word over you because God loves you and has endured the cross on your behalf. Receive his forgiveness this morning. Let's pray.